couple weeks ago, I took a few days vacation to celebrate my parents' 50th wedding anniversary. My siblings and my sister-in-law in particular did an extraordinary amount of work. As those things often do, they kind of grow and grow as you get into it. It becomes more and more elaborate. It was so rewarding, I would say, to see how happy and appreciative my, my parents were. We had mass at which the priest that officiated at their wedding was present to receive the renewal of their vows. He was also celebrating his 50th anniversary this year. It was great. So mass followed by reception, family and friends, and, and then dinner afterwards. At the end, I don't know if my brother had this planned all along or if it was something last minute, but after dinner, he had my parents sit in his convertible you know, parade-style-like, and all of us line up behind them in our cars with our flashers going, and then he drove down the streets slowly, honking at oncoming traffic and having them wave. (laughs) I was right behind them and saw lots of smiles on people's faces, and I thought, well, that's kind of kooky, isn't it? Can you imagine? But then I thought, you know, it's, it's so right. 50 years is a significant achievement. And what's happening there is they're drawing the community into the celebration of that, which is less and less common, sadly, in our day. And not only that, it's a small town, so undoubtedly there were some who knew my parents and could find encouragement. It's possible to do that. We could do that, too. You know, in preparation for the Mass in particular, the homily asked my parents at this vantage point, 50 years, where does your mind go to as you look back? And they began to retell the story a little bit of of their married life. Mom said that dad has been her rock throughout their marriage. She said, "I, I could not have survived the difficult times. For example, my brother, I uh, was born with a hip problem and spent a year and a half in a full body cast shortly after birth. And I myself missed a year and a half of high school, she said, in those cases. And then during the homily, I added, you know, and for my sister, just generally speaking, she needed all the help that a parent could provide. And then, and then my dad said, I just can't imagine the pathetic person I would be without your mother calling me to a better way of living, to aspire to the higher things. And it was interesting that both of them pointed to the value of raising the family on the farm. So we lived several miles outside of the small town. And how that provided a buffer from the harmful influences that were nearby, allowing them to create a culture there that was life-giving and fruitful. And the selection from the Book of Wisdom is just part of its basic retelling of the general story of mankind, of good and evil and God's intervention in our history. Leading up to our account was a meditation on the Exodus event. I mean, that decree that went out by Pharaoh to kill all the newborn boys of the Hebrews at their birth, the saving of Moses from that fate, 
And it dwelt on the plagues, especially the ninth plague of darkness, which it interpreted as the darkness of the Egyptian conscience that lacked the light of God's law. And then it came to the Passover. The night of the Passover was known beforehand to our fathers. The Passover, of course, was that event in which God intervened through Moses and Aaron to draw the Israelites away from slavery. The firstborn of the Israelites were saved, as you remember, through the wiping, the smearing of the blood of the spotless lamb on the doorposts and lentils. But they were told, they were instructed to eat that Passover meal with their loins girt, which means that their long robes would have been tucked up out of the way so at a moment's notice they could flee. They could participate in that Passover event. So in the gospel, when Jesus says, gird your loins, he's referring back to the Passover. As your forefathers prepared at Passover for God's visitation, so must you be prepared. The master is returning as God had promised to do. I am he, Jesus is saying. His Passover is near at hand, which brings with it consequences for leaders like Peter and for everyone. Jesus is speaking of his impending death and resurrection, which qualifies him to judge the living and the dead when he returns, repaying everyone according to their deeds. Friends, I know that many of you and many in Kansas and beyond were shocked, saddened, and discouraged by the results on Tuesday of the vote tally for the Value Them Both Amendment. May I simply and gently remind you that Christians serve a crucified king. As he himself said, he came to witness to the truth, the credibility of which lay on the other side of his death in the form of his resurrection. This was his vindication and the vindication of the truth to which Jesus testified. Don't forget, you serve a crucified Messiah who looked like a failure. It is God who brings about a victory which shines forth at times in the darkness, but complete triumph comes in God's own time and through his own power. The Christian's duty is to bear witness to this truth, not to achieve a utopia through our own efforts. This is why the Christian life often looks like the vandalized buildings or election signs which convict the wrongdoers while testifying to the truth as Jesus did on the cross, revealing in his body the depravity of humanity. So there should be no moping or being downcast. The fruit of your labors will be revealed fully only when the master returns to reward and to punish as is warranted. Faith is the imperative in this in-between time. And notice how the pattern of a life of faith is sketched out in our readings. Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Jacob and the others, well, they didn't possess what had been promised, but sought and greeted it from afar and acknowledged themselves to be strangers and aliens on earth. For those who speak thus show that they are seeking a homeland, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. 
Faith lives in anticipation of the fulfillment of God's promise, creating a pathway for that future reality to break into this world even now. And it does so in conditions that are at times unfavorable and even hostile. Your people awaited the salvation of the just and the destruction of their foes, the Book of Wisdom records. They did so with sure knowledge of the oath in which they put their faith, which doesn't simply mean book knowledge, but knowledge of God through basing your life choices off of his promises, leaving your homeland as Abraham and Sarah did, worshiping God as the Book of Wisdom records, selling your belongings and giving alms as Jesus said. That's how courage grows. That's how hope is kindled. And to this end, a Judeo-Christian culture developed, which supported individuals, families, and communities in being faithful to God. Practices emerged, such as the purity laws in the Old Testament, as well as abstaining from meat on Fridays, observing holy days, devotions, and joining in parish events. And not only this, but works of literature and art and music were composed to portray imaginatively something of who God is, what a human being is, and what makes for a good and meaningful life. Skills and crafts within the home were nurtured to contribute to the domestic economy and to develop the gifts of each member. And communal events provided support and companionship since a believer's true homeland lay elsewhere and social beings need encouragement from outside the family home. This is how a culture takes shape, which is extraordinarily powerful in combating hostile forces. Such was John Paul II's assessment of how the Polish people withstood and overcame the horrific invasion of communism that covertly created theatrical productions and participated in them. They shared meals, they read stories of saints and national heroes, and sang patriotic hymns with one another. But so much of our Judeo-Christian culture has been compromised, leaving us weak and susceptible to the surrounding darkness. Discontinuing prayer in schools is an obvious example but so many other cultural elements have been diminished, compromised, or canceled. From downplaying patriotism, just think of the 1619 Project present in many schools, to omitting classic books of Western civilization and philosophy, to the severe reduction in budgets for music and the arts. That which formerly has helped us become more human and receptive to the supernatural has given way to technical skills that promise higher earnings but devoid of an ethical foundation to render us morally inept at using the technology we've created. With this being so widespread, parents find themselves frustrated with the lack of support, if not being at odds with educators. And religion teachers find their task nearly impossible since their students, by and large, live within a worldview that has no room or need of the supernatural. How much of your child or grandchild's life is taken up with the spiritual? How likely will they be then to believe in Jesus? Think of it this way. First time I was asked to preach at a parish, I was a deacon in Chicago. 
the gospel that day was the grain of wheat that falls to the ground and dies. So as a good Kansas farm boy, I gave a few details about what that means, what it looks like. You till the soil, you fertilize it, you get it ready, you sow the seed, you give it some water. It grows up, it sprouts, it turns green, but then it looks like it's not going any farther. The winter comes, it, it becomes dormant, and then only in the spring does it begin to sprout up again and must face often violent forces of wind, of hail, of drought, until it finally turns a lovely shade of golden brown, bears it, its berries, and dies. Now, I was fascinated after the homily how many Chicagoans came up to me and said, I never knew any of that. How can you understand, how can you find that parable coherent if you don't know that one little detail? How can you find God, grace, the supernatural coherent if your worldview is almost exclusively dedicated, not to the divine, but to the material. All of this has been on my mind for quite some time now. And over the past many months, with John Paul II's insight and the power of culture to combat evil, as well as with the Benedictine's order, ability to preserve culture in the midst of the decay and decline of the Roman Empire and the onset of the Dark Ages, as well as with lots of staff turnover, I asked myself, if you could start an approach to formation at the parish, basically from scratch, how would you do it? What would make sense given the conditions of our day? What about picking up those things that have been jettisoned by schools, even Catholic ones, that used to help you parents as you sought to raise your children? The stories that were told, the literature that was offered, the music that was given, the art that was communicated, the skills in shop class or a home ec. What if we were able to root our religious education in that much broader context that has proved so resilient and fruitful over the centuries? And to the end, I asked for some assistance within and without the parish and have hired three people to help us in this pursuit. One, the first one, has been involved in education for many years. Her strength is curriculum development. So by that, I mean something like this. When I taught fifth grade religion at my first assignment, I used the Chronicles of Narnia as our religion textbook. The kids were extraordinarily open to it, which allowed us to talk about virtues, about friendship, about God. In my last assignment, I read excerpts from Don Quixote to the third and fourth graders who were able to get something of what courage is, cowardice is, and the mess that he was forecasting modern man would experience 500 years ago. Shall not only seek to do that with the youth, but provide marriage enrichments for the parents who are involved, as well as beginning catechesis of the Good Shepherd for children as young as three. We also were able to hire a high school teacher who's been teaching for years at a classical high school in Arkansas. He'll be in charge of young adult ministry, as well as facilitating those 
low entry events, if you will, easy entry events for those who are not so interested in the scripture to develop basic skills, automotive skills, woodworking skills, and such, while also providing specific outreach to the homeschool community. And then lastly, a music director who is finishing up his dissertation and is an international recruit, so we still have a few hoops to go through before he's able to help us here and provide fine arts and enrich our liturgies. Friends, the election revealed the state of our state and our society. In that respect, we should be grateful for it removes any remaining blinders. Christianity is no longer mainstream. And unless we work to provide support and strength here, the odds are very unfavorable that your children will continue in that which is most important to you. Gird your loins and don't forget we serve a crucified Lord. May he not be ashamed to be called our God too.